I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Let's bow in prayer, shall we? Lord, we want to ask you that you will help us to understand the passage that we have before us. We come, Lord, as those who are so aware of how easily we can be confused. We know, Lord, that uh, somehow our hearts are easily deceived, our minds are easily deluded. We ask, Lord, that you would uh, clear away the fog, that as your Holy Spirit comes and ministers in each one of us individually, that you would make things absolutely clear to us. And then, Lord, as our eyes have been opened, please, Lord, we pray, give us the courage and the determination and the absolute commitment to respond to the truth you are telling us. Let not one of us here this morning, Lord, leave having not done business with you. Come amongst us then, we pray, as we read your word. In Christ's name. Amen. Well, the Millennium Dome's nearly completed, isn't it? Everything's more or less organised for the uh, great celebration on the great night, the 31st of December, 1999, when uh, we will move over to a new year a new century, and at least according to the reckoning of um, uh, most people, a new millennium. People will be thronging through the dome then for the next uh, year, getting what is called the millennium experience. It's been a lot, a lot of controversy actually over that millennium experience. Um, partly, Um, about the lack of Christian representation that there is in the dome. There is, of course, the spirit zone, um, very 1990s sort of phrase. 
but it's been uh, notoriously difficult actually to find funding even for that small part of the dome. And then, if you've been reading the news, there's been a lot of haggling about the precise nature of the celebrations at midnight on the 31st of December. I gather, actually, it's likely that the song that I mentioned a few weeks ago um, by uh, John Lennon, Imagine, will be one of the last songs to be uh, heard by many, many people in the second millennium. And, of course, Imagine wistfully speculates about having no religion perhaps not even any heaven, must be actually deliciously ironic to the secularists in our society that on the 2000th birthday of the child who came from heaven and spoke about uh, heaven and the end of the world, we will actually be singing lyrics of a child of Liverpool who spoke about there being no heaven. I wonder whose uh, influence over the next millennium will be more significant. I have to say, though, I don't get terribly excited about this millennium experience that uh, they keep talking about in the Dome. Not least because as, I, as a Christian, I am convinced that the Bible says the church has been enjoying the millennium experience for the last 2,000 years. Let me explain. See, the passage that we have uh, uh, come to um, contains this famous piece about Christ ruling for a thousand years, which Margaret uh, spoke about, just uh, uh, read for us just a little bit earlier. Some people have seen that as a prediction of some future period in history when Christ will come, a, uh, come again and uh, 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 rule for a thousand years. Some people speak of, uh, think it's a, a future period in history before Christ finally comes again. But there will be some sense in which Christ is, is ruling sometime in the future for a thousand years before Christ finally comes again in person. But um, as I explained last Sunday evening to those who were, were here, and I think the tape it should be available... Um, it's my belief that this is yet another symbolic representation of basically what has been going on ever since Christ rose from the dead. This thousand years uh, uh, acts as a symbol of the long period in which the church exists before Christ finally comes again. What we will be reading about in Revelation 20 is what the church has been enjoying so far for two millennia. Chapters 12 to 14 functioned as a, a first interlude in this long set of cycles of seven. Do you remember them? Seven seals and then seven trumpets and then finally seven last plagues. Well, after the seven uh, uh, trumpets, there was a long interlude in which John invited us to step back and look at history as if it was the outworking of a whole series of characters working their uh, purposes in history. There was a beast out of the sea. There was a beast out of the earth. There was a dragon who is Satan. And then there was the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Well, now we have come to the end of a second long interlude, which started at chapter 17. This time it's an interlude after the seventh plague has been poured out. And, ex and those characters appear again. 
with the fifth one. The fifth character we looked at last week, uh, the great prostitute. Uh, but uh, this week, we're going to look at the other three characters who oppose Christ. The two beasts, one of whom this time is called the false prophet, and the dragon, the devil himself. And we're going to uh, trace their respective fates. First of all then, in chapter 19, verses uh, 11 to the end of the, the chapter, we find that Christ is described as a warrior who overcomes the beasts. Verse 11 of chapter 19. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. This is a magnificent figure. He is a royal figure. He rides on a white horse. He wears many crowns. He is a mighty warrior. He wears a, a robe dripped in blood. He does battle with the beast out of the sea and the beast out of the earth, who is called the false prophet here. Verse 17, I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. And then I saw the beast... And the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Vivid stuff, isn't it? Important thing, though, that I want you to notice in this great battle is how this great figure, this king, this warrior, who is, of course, Jesus, how he does battle. And he himself is called the Word of God, isn't he, in verse 13? He uh, is God's communication to us. And his instrument of warfare is his tongue. Verse 15. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Or verse 21. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse and all the birds gorge themselves on their flesh. But it's a, it's a terrible description, isn't it? See, uh, it is vivid imagery to show us that Christ rules over all forces of evil that are opposed to him, including people if they choose to oppose him. But to show us that primarily he rules by his word. Throughout the Bible, God's word itself achieves the most extraordinary things. Remember, God only had to speak 
for the world to be created. But now Christ only has to speak with his sword-like tongue to strike down nations, to defeat the beast and the false prophet, to win a global battle against all forces which oppose him. How does he speak? Well, on the last day, he will speak in person. He will personally pronounce his verdict on all people. But this passage is mainly speaking about what happens before the last day. And before that final great day, he speaks when his people proclaim his gospel. He speaks when his written word, the Bible, is opened. He speaks when people hear the word of God. Chapter 2 of Revelation, actually, when Christ is uh, dictating a letter to a church in Pergamum, he warns them that he may come to fight against them with the sword of his mouth. And we're not to imagine that uh, Christ was going to miraculously appear in in their midst wielding a sword. No, what was going to happen in this church is that as they opened their Bibles and studied it, they would realize how Christ was opposed to some even within that church. He would cut them down to size, so to speak. And he still does that. Now that's the world we live in. We've gone through this book, we've seen this world described in, in, in stark and horrific images, haven't we? The forces opposed to God are very real and very terrible. But as John has sort of put the last layer on his multi-layered picture and shown us, shows us now the whole thing, he wants to complete it by saying, be in no doubt about the main plot of history. The main plot is Christ will defeat all powers which oppose him. And he will do it by the spread of his gospel. Our church is delightfully multicultural. That itself is a tribute to the fact of that victory that Christ achieves. The message of of Christ has won uh, victories on every continent, under every kind of political regime, amongst rich and poor, amongst educated and uneducated, amongst powerful people and powerless people. And as John says in chapter 19, verse 20, The prophet worked partly by deluding people throughout the world. And Christ works so that people throughout the world will not be deluded. The sword of his mouth defeats all opposition in every culture that has ever existed in this world. Christ can win such battles, in this city even, you know. All that is needed is for his gospel to be set free. For his people to speak his word. For his church to be mobilized to tell the good news. Now we teach the Bible seriously in this church because God's word to to, to people uh, uh, defeats Christ's enemies. Christianity Explained, we were thinking about earlier, is at the heart of our church's life because we know that Christ uses his word clearly explained to transform people's lives. He defeats all his enemies by the sword of his mouth.
You know, the 19th century preacher C.H. Spurgeon was once asked how he defended the scriptures against their critics. He answered, defend them? I would sooner defend a lion. All that is needed is to set them free. It's the image of a warrior then. That John is uh, drawing his book to a conclusion with. But then he says essentially the same thing using a different image. Now he uses the image of a jailer. That's the passage that Margaret read to us. I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. This time it's the dragon. Do you remember the last great character who was introduced to us in, in chapters 12 to 14? The last and greatest enemy of Christ, the devil himself. Now we must examine his fate, says John. He is bound for a thousand years. Now this is a notoriously... Uh, um, divisive passage it has been amongst Christians in the 20th century, as I mentioned earlier. But I take it to be symbolic of the whole church age, partly actually because the, the events that are symbolised here correspond most closely to uh, Jesus' description of his earthly ministry, not of some future ministry that he will have at a later date. Jesus himself said that he was binding the devil in his earthly ministry. Christ's great message at his resurrection was that now all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him so that the disciples could go to all nations and make disciples of them. To use the language of verse 3 of chapter 20, the devil no longer has power to deceive the nations. They can all hear the truth now. Indeed, um, it's not the devil who rules the nations now, it is others, verse 4. I saw thrones in which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. <coughs> I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image, had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. You know, verses like that make very peculiar reading to us and, 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 and confuse us until we remember that elsewhere in the New Testament it is said that Christians are already alive with new life. In Ephesians chapter 1 it says they are already seated in the heavenly realms. That Christians are adopted sons and daughters of, uh, with Christ. They are even co-heirs with Christ. Now, the fact that it is the, the beheaded here who are the only ones mentioned who, who rise from, from the dead, I think corresponds with the, with the general tendency in Revelation to assume that true believers will be martyred. John wants us to be in no, no doubt about what we are and are not protected from. He was speaking to people who were, uh, were about to see a great rise in uh, persecution. 
And he says, if you are a Christian, do not assume anything but that you could lose your life for it. As Jesus said, whoever wants to follow me, but take up his cross daily. So this is not, in fact, just a subset of believers who happen to have been uh, uh, martyred in a certain way, beheaded. No, this is, this is John speaking about believers. That's why he goes on to say they are the people who had not worshipped the beast or his image. That's all believers. So in, uh, uh, in verse 6, we find that uh, they are enjoying the first resurrection, resurrection life that began on earth and is fulfilled in heaven. Blessed and holy are those who have a part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. They will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So, says John, don't be in any doubt about the, 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 the power of the devil. Yes, he is vicious, but he is bound. In fact, believers now rule over him. And even if he, can t if he takes their life, believers rule over him in heaven. There is nothing they need to fear. Certainly, he says, there will be a period at the end of that time when there is a last great outpouring of the devil's power. Verse 7, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison. Revelation has actually anticipated again and again um, this last great outpouring of, of, uh, of Satan's power. But we haven't dwelt on it much in, in the chapters so far. That was why as the seven seals were opened, the, the horrors seemed to get worse and worse. And then as the seven trumpets were, were, were sounded, the horrors seemed to get worse and worse, and so on. John has, has been saying consistently throughout that there is a sense in which history will reach a terrible climax. And now he's saying it again. He's using this time the image of uh, Satan being released from this jail sentence for just a period. But then Christ will come again. Christ will defeat the enemies. Even though they, they, they gather as an innumerable throng, even though they, uh, they, they, they unite to oppose him, even though as uh, hostile forces had done against Israel in Old Testament times, they come and besiege the people of God. God will protect them. Once God had protected the prophet Elijah simply by fire coming down from heaven and consuming his enemies. And now, says John, the same will happen. He will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, which were just uh, um, mythical peoples who were hostile to God. Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In the number they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth, surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them. 
Have we reached that last great climactic battle? I, I don't know. In every age, there are people who've stood up and said from uh, pulpits and in public places, this is the moment. This is the moment just before Christ will come again. And so far, every single one of them has been wrong. So I'm not going to add myself to that list. What I do know is that enough has happened in the 20th century that we need not be surprised if Christ came tomorrow. Now, uh, there has been uh, great outpourings of evil in this world. Terrible things have happened. At least 70 million people have been killed in wars alone. But we do not know when Christ will come again. What we do know is that he will come again. Verse 10. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever. See, we live in the time when Christians are enjoying the real millennium experience. Never mind that little dome that's down there in Greenwich. Christians have been enjoying it for 2,000 years. We're living in a time when the devil is bound. Or if it is perhaps the time when the devil is released for a time, then it is the moment just before the devil is utterly beaten, finally beaten. We're living in the times when, when nations and the Cowley Road, and Blackbird Lees, and our friends, and our neighbours can hear and respond to the gospel because the devil cannot hold them if Christ has decided they are his. We're living in a time when those terribly clever students in the university, university can finally realise how deeply they have been deceived by Satan and come to a knowledge of Christ. We are living when those, in a time when those ordinary, uneducated people in, in Wood Farm and Rose Hill and Garsington can realise how the beast and the prophet have deluded them. Those are the times we are living in. We're living in the times when you and I do not need to be ruled by Satan. We're living in a time when evil is vanquished, when it is actually in its death throes. Because Christ has won a great battle on the cross. Christ has defeated even death when he rose from the dead. And one day he will come to complete that victory. It is not uncertain. It is definite. So on the evening of December the 31st, I'm going to be celebrating that. Frankly, and the year after, Jesus hasn't returned. I'm going to be enjoying the millennium experience by treating the devil as he should be treated, as a spent force, as a defeated enemy, as a doomed foe. Now, the best way that uh, we can do that as a church is by laughing at him, frankly. We are, we, we are a people who know that our witness can be successful who know that we have a message which can save all sorts of people that can bring joy and happiness and contentment such as we, we never knew. We know that. We can live in the joy of that. 
But there is one final thing in this passage that we really need to come to terms with. If we ourselves personally are going to enjoy that millennium experience. Now Christ is a warrior. He defeats the beast. God is a jailer. He binds the devil until he's finally uh, condemned. But God is also a judge who judges every single individual personally. That's the burden of verses 11 to 15. I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. John, John describes, did you notice, two types of book which record our lives. First of all, there are books, plural. It seems that they record everything we have ever done. We are going to be judged according to their evidence, says John. But unfortunately, those books that record everything only determine the fine details of the sentence that will be passed down. There's another book which is also opened, which determines the basic verdict on our lives. That's called the book of life. Whatever the fine details of God's uh, uh, verdict on all our actions, our basic destiny is recorded in that book. And that's a book that records one thing and one thing only about us, you know. Did he or she have personal faith in Christ? Doesn't bother with uh, uh, questions such as, did they believe certain things about Christ? Doesn't bother with things about uh, whether that person generally thought Christ was a good thing. Doesn't bother with questions of whether we went to church, whether we were baptized, whether we knew our creed, whether we could read the Bible and uh, understand every theological detail. Doesn't bother with whether we were, were, were good to people and nice to people or whether in fact we were quite nasty to people sometimes. Those are all in the other books. Those are the fine details. The book of life answers one question. Did they have faith in Christ? Uh, I fear, frankly, that uh, some of us even may be surprised about the list of names that is written in that book. 
Some of us may be horrified when that book is opened. Jesus said that would be the case. One amongst Jesus' 12 disciples was a traitor. You know, we can be as good as certain, I fear, that there are people in this room whose fate is described in, in the most horrific terms in this passage and others, who don't realize that is their fate because they are deluded, because they are deceived. The two key things that the devil and the beast does Christian faith is terribly simple. It only means trusting Christ. It only means turning to Christ and seeking his help. It only means seeking his forgiveness. And yet it does mean that. It does mean we must do that, not just think about doing that, not just contemplate doing that, not just deceive ourselves that we did do that. When we have done that, our lives will change, you know. When we have done that, there will be evidence. There will be a stack of supporting evidence that builds up in the other books. Now, can you imagine the uh, recording angel reporting on one of us, perhaps? Lord, they said they had faith, so um, we got ready to write their name down in the book of life. But then as time went on, they showed no real evidence of it. Everything about their Christianity was external, God. Look at this list of what they did when no one was looking. Look at this transcript of their thought life that we were able to get, God. Look at the way they treated you in their minds, God, as they scorned you and ignored you, thought nothing of you. Now, we had to conclude that we should not write their name down, God. It's not here. I long, personally, that no one would leave this building without their names being in that book that John is talking about. But I have to say I'm not confident of it. I long that no one would walk out of this building deceived. But I have to say I am not confident of it. What I am confident of is that Christ himself has the power to break that deception. And in the book of of life, there is an innumerable list of names from every tribe and nation. And if, you know, some of us make a space in that book because of our refusal to turn with Christ, turn, turn to Christ, and God will not be mocked He will go out on the highways and byways and he will find people who will join him, who will have faith in him. 
He is a warrior, remember. He defeats all opposition that would delude people. He is a jailer, remember. He binds the devil so that the devil may not deceive people. And then after that, in the end, for every single person, he is a judge. And he asks this simple question. Did you take advantage of that defeat that I have done in this world? Or did you stay deceived and deluded? I wonder what his verdict is. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we want to rejoice that you have defeated all those foes that stood against us. And you have made the way open for us to embrace you. But Lord, as we bow in your presence now, we pray for each one of ourselves personally that you would give us hearts that sincerely trust you, sincerely follow you, sincerely seek your forgiveness. How terrible it would be, Lord, if we, any one of us here was deceived. Please, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, open our hearts, change our lives, bring us to you now. And let us evermore live our lives in the joy and liberty that knows that there is no fear of the second death because you have given us eternal life. In Christ's precious name we ask it. Amen.